Dix. Nio. Åtta. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Sterre. Drei. Dva. One. Welcome listeners to the special bonus edition of the ESA Explorers podcast. My name is Annalise Van Dam, and in these episodes, we will be talking about science on the International Space Station. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the first European astronaut making his way up to the ISS and starting the 20 years of science experiments in low Earth orbit. We want to know more about how science got started, what it takes to get an experiment up to the ISS, and what's in store for the future. In this episode, we'll discuss present-day science on the International Space Station. What does it take to get a science experiment up to space? What are the challenges? And why do we want to do science in microgravity anyway? If you've listened to our previous episode, you will know who our guests are. But just in case there are any new listeners, here's another introduction. With us today is Andreas Schön. Am I pronouncing that right, Andreas? It's good enough. Good enough. <laughs> Great. And Andreas is Research and Utilization Group Leader at the European Space Agency. Uh, Andreas, what, uh, what's the best way to describe what you do in one sentence? We try to uh, identify the right signs to go to the space station. Uh, we, we prepare it, we integrate it, we, we develop the respective experiment hardware, and we put the flight plan together. And then uh, our increment managers manage the uh, respective uh, operational teams, implementation teams to get the whole show going. That's in short the description of what our team is doing. A very short description. Okay, so you, you make sure that the science gets up there. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay, perfect. We also have uh, Kirsten McDonnell, and you are Utilization Planning Team Leader at the European Space Agency, correct? Yes, that's correct. And how would you describe what you do in one sentence? <laughs> I would say that I take for all of ESA's experiments and activities destined for the ISS coming from various sources, from our science-based program, our national contributions, and even commercial and education activities. I oversee uh, what stage they're in and various stages of development and which ones we can perform and when, making the best use of our astronauts' crew time while they're in space to get as much science performed as possible. That would uh, be what I do in a nutshell. In a nutshell, great. And uh, would it be appropriate to uh, to describe your job as uh, a puzzle? I would say a four dimensional puzzle, because <laughs> uh, or maybe even add a fifth dimension. But certainly, we're looking at um, what we can do and when, given the various schedules of so many different types of experiments. So some take a while to develop, some take less time to develop. And we also have to take into account when we can actually launch these, when we can perform them. Uh, and then uh, sometimes we need to return the samples, for example, as well. So it's a, a puzzle where you take into account uh, space and time and resources as well. Wow. Okay, good. I can't wait to hear more about this. Uh, and then finally, we have Nicole Buckley. And you are SciSpace team leader at ESA, correct? Uh, yes, and so I'm relatively new to ESA, but I can already tell you that I've got the best job because my job is to uh, work with the scientists outside of ESA, but in Europe, to get the very best science to address the most interesting questions in space. So we try to get the world-class science in an out-of-this-world platform. 
And so I get to uh, interact with all the different sciences. Now I'm a microbiologist by training, but I get to talk to physical scientists and life scientists and planetary exploration. And we get to talk about Concordia, which is in Antarctic. We get to talk about moon, Mars, and uh, probably one of my favorite platforms and one of our longest um, platforms for humans is the International Space Station. So I guess uh, I work closely with Kirsten because uh, we get the science and then we bring it to her and say, can you make this happen? <laughs> and she rises to the occasion and does it. Perfect. Yeah. So you all work together, the three of you. Yes, we do. Perfect. So thank you for your, uh, for these great introductions. And thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today. My first question is how much science is going on in space? We have the International Space Station. I think most people know that it's you know, circling around the Earth uh, and that astronauts go there and come back every once in a while. But these astronauts actually spend a large amount of time doing science experiments. How much of the astronaut time is, is dedicated to science on, on the ISS? So if you take away the fact that they, they need to sleep, they need to eat, have their own personal hygiene, and they exercise for about two to two and a half hours a day as well, just to maintain muscle and bone strength and good health. Then what remains is roughly around five or six hours a day per astronaut. So, so a lot of science is going on. <laughs> yes, I'd say a, roughly around 200 experiments at every at any given moment or so is probably a good estimate. Wow. So, I, I mean, in preparation now, we have an ESA astronaut flying Thomas uh, Pesquet. And um, in that six-month period, we have about 50 different experiments uh, that will all take place from ESA alone. All of our other partners have, have experiments going on. And um, the experiments are not always designed for that agency's crew member alone. So in order to accomplish our experiments, we have often other astronauts from other agencies that are performing them, and uh, and we share data. And for example, for ESA, um, we are not the main set of astronauts that are always on orbit on the space station, and so we do rely on the U.S. and CSA and JAXA, as well as the Russians, to support us in completing our experiments. If you would compare as an experiment on Earth to an experiment on the ISS, like what kind of things do you have to think of that you wouldn't have to worry about on Earth? Oh, okay, here's one that I always thought when I started working in space, I, I'll just offer this one because it really surprised me. You never have to ask yourself on Earth if your equipment is kick-proof. When you're in space, the astronauts can float by and sometimes you'll see them push off the wall. Well, sometimes they might push off against your equipment. So that's that's one thing. Another thing you have to worry about is what we call um, heat exchange. I'm, I'm just thinking of things that really surprised me when I started working in space. If something sort of overheats, you can open up a window, stick on a fan, you can do all these things. But the heat, where's it going to go in space? Like, you know, this becomes very important. And um, off-gassing. If something starts to smell bad or if something happens, you open a window. You can't open a window in space just to air things out. And so, you know how if you sometimes, um, I think if you open a new package of something that's plastic, you get that plasticky kind of smell. Well, if it's somehow maybe minorly toxic, it's, it's gonna stay there. So you've got to kind of vent and aerate and do all these kinds of things. And you also have to worry 
about uh, if you drop something, it falls on the ground on Earth. Well, in space, it's not going to do so quite as quickly. So things are floating around. And uh, I think that uh, from a biological, well, and even a physical science perspective, uh, things have to be contained. Because you can always wipe up a little bit of a mass, and if something leaks, you're okay in space. You're not okay if something leaks. Mm -hmm. And you're up there with two, and it's also very unusual. Um, when I was a microbiologist, I never talked to a physical scientist. I never talked to some of these other people. But in space, all those experiments are going on in the same space, in the same lab. And uh, so this really requires uh, a lot of demands from the people who are implementing them. It also makes a lot of demands uh, when astronauts are running the experiments because suddenly they're having to learn basic physical science, basic microbiology, basic, I don't know, fluid physics, just so that they can start to understand all these different experiments that are being done in a set period of time during their missions. So I think that this, so that, that whole way of doing science is really quite different. And uh, the other thing I'll just add is that on Earth, if something goes wrong, you get another kick at the can, or you can adjust in real time. Well, you are allotted, and this is, um, again, with Andreas and, and Kirsten know this better than I do, but you're allotted a certain window. And if you need that extra time, you're bumping somebody else's science off. So, you know, you really have to be very rigorous because it's almost like, a, I don't know, it's almost like you're lining up and you have your shot as a scientist. So you really have to change how you plan your science because you're not going to get a second kick at the can. Are there people on your team that just constantly, their job is just to worry about what can go wrong? I think every step of the way, that's what people should do. So, um, you know, there's various steps in, in preparing a payload for space. But indeed, uh, I would say that like every step of the way, we should be considering that, you know, because all along, there's so many different levels where where things could go wrong. And so that's that's indeed what people should always ask themselves to to uh, as a preemptive strike. But getting back to your question also about um, experiments on Earth versus space, um, you know, one example that we're seeing now with regards to, say, uh, COVID vaccines, people are asking, how many people have you tested this on? When you think of space, if you want to have a human subject, they are they are the subjects themselves of those uh, those experiments. And um, up until just last year, we only had four to six crew members occupying the space station at any given point in time. And half of those were Russian crew members, Russian cosmonauts. And so we would usually have access mainly, although we do have some, some collaborations with the Russians, but mainly have access to the ones that are either European, American, Canadian, or Japanese. That means only three, uh, around two to three people at a time. And in order to get a full set of subjects, um, you know, compared to if you imagine experiments on Earth where you could easily get a lot of subjects to perform them, uh, you know, a, a number of test subjects like eight or 12 can still take um, even years to accumulate. So because they're staying up there for six months at a time, you might only have one or two during inch, each increment. So it could, in theory, take, um, you know, three or four years in order to get uh, the number of test subjects that uh, actually make sense for, make the science uh, valuable. And the same even goes for um, uh, microbiology or any biology. Um, you are, you are, 
restraining yourself a little bit because of the fact that there's only so much volume in your incubator, for example, whereas on the ground, you might have 10 of them and you could incubate at, uh, at various temperatures over various time periods and you can have 100 Petri dishes <laughs> growing different things. So here, we just don't have that kind of volume and we don't have, uh, we have to be as efficient as possible. And so they do a lot of testing on ground in order to try to find the best window scientifically and, and cope with the fact that they have such a limited number, number of samples in order to finally get results that still are, are interesting to the science community. Yeah. Let me go back to something that Kirsten said because it's an interesting observation I did with myself. When you're long enough in that business, you realize that your mindset changes. Because when you look at things, you say, is there still a way that thing could fail? And, and, and that enters sometimes your private life. And you, when, you, when you go and travel, you say, what can all go wrong? Is there anything that that damn thing can fail? You know, so that, that, that's it. Because that's actually what you're looking at. You say, I have prepared everything. And then you do the, the, the counter view and you say, is there still an element which could potentially make that fail? So that's a that's a very interesting observation. This, this is this is the mindset because you, you you want to make sure you have excluded all risk, and by that process of thinking of this, you also make sure you understand your plan B, C, and D. You you play with the option. What what is the recovery in case this happens, this happens, and this happens? And that that's a very interesting thing. And so so that you, I, you kind I, of. You, you kind of pay for that in your private life when you like, prepare a meal. Or yeah, but, but when, you, when you do this in your private life, it becomes, you know, your friends will look at you at a very strange way if you come <laughs> with that mindset. You know? But I think that I think this is where you see the science versus the engineer divide. Oh. Because I have to say that as a scientist, well, it breaks our heart when science goes off nominal, I think to say it. When, when the strange things happen, there's a part of us that goes, well, that is really interesting. I wonder, and then we might get a new idea for another experiment. And I, I, I love to quote people. I think it was Asimov who said that more science comes from people saying that's strange than from people saying Eureka. And space gives us a lot of that's strange. So, and, and I think that this is something I just want to add, I, I think is important is that when you do science on Earth, you have a set of rules and you've always been doing it the same way. And you sort of have, I would say, almost a luxury to, to go wrong because you can do it again tomorrow. You just clean up the lab and start again. But when you do it in space, it really forces you to think because every little thing you do can have an impact, not just on your science, but on the science next to it. There's many rules and regulations. Uh, chemicals you might use on Earth, you can't use in space. So suddenly uh, something that you, you just do well, you just can't just do it in space because that chemical might not be allowed. So then you have to find another way to get to that same step. And like, so just the pipetting can be really difficult in space because, uh, or heating something or keeping something at a certain temperature because you're in a microgravity environment. So I think that, and I believe that when you uh, push a scientist to think outside the box, you get some really amazing work done. Nice. Well, and, and space is definitely outside the box of Earth, right? <laughs> so uh, for our um, listeners that are researchers and that are dreaming of an experiment on ISS, how would they get their experiments up there? What's the road to space? 
I guess first of all, they showed me sent sent me a box of chocolate. That's all very good memories. We have announcements of opportunity, which are open to Europeans to apply, and we will often outline perhaps the interests and some of the constraints uh, in order to fly their science. And in preparation for that, there are opportunities to participate in basically interactions we have with the scientists. And so we can do this through topical teams or we talk with the community and we get the community together to discuss activities that are of interest to us. And we can sort of, um, the example I always give is if somebody says, yeah, it'd be really, really great to fly an, an, a giraffe. We can say, no, 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 no. Stop with the giraffe right now and rethink how, what's another way you could do that. So I think there's some education that goes on in workshops and topical teams. Then we have these open, announcements of opportunity that you get together with some other scientists, because if you have a, I would say a very narrow, 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 tiny, tiny experiment that requires a lot of crew time, might be a little harder. And if you try and fly the giraffe, might not make it. But if you learn from the experience, go to the research, have a really interesting question that will do one of two things. Help us to understand how space impacts humans and the forces around us or help us to um, explore and get further out there then i think that there's a, a and it's world-class science it's got to be really innovative really interesting to make sure that we're it's worth all the work and the expense frankly of getting up there then there's definitely a place for you so it's a competitive process we have a lot of smart scientists look at it. We have some smart engineers look at it and say, yeah, I think we can do that. My team really works with trying to get the best science ideas. And once we have those, then we pass them to Kirsten's team. All right. And Kirsten, what does your team then do next? So once the science has been selected and the scientists have have defined all of their requirements. So by requirements, it's, it can be everything from uh, this biological sample needs to be launched at 10 degrees Celsius and then returned frozen. It could be, I want this astronaut to perform this uh, within within 10 days of his or her arrival on the station and then halfway through their mission and within 10 days of departure again. So those are different requirements. I need this, this, um, this uh, foam to um, be mixed and then I would like the camera to observe it and film it for the next five minutes or until the foam stabilizes. It could be all kinds of different requirements. And once those are clear and our in, in our and our scientists have have very clearly um, described them, uh, then we go into the process of hardware development. And so uh, it, there's a contract and invitation to tender for for industry to make a proposal to build the hardware that would be required to enable this science. And so that process can definitely, depending on the complexity, depending if they're building off a heritage or if it's something really new, it can take a number of years. It could also take, you know, a matter of only one year or so. It, it really just depends on, on complexity. And then it, there's finally a, what we call a final acceptance review. Um, we also, as uh, Nicole was saying earlier about safety, she mentioned off-gassing, she mentioned kick loads. 
sharp edges. We need to make sure what we're building is safe to operate on orbit, both that it won't damage existing equipment. So if you're going to take an experiment and put it into a facility, it won't damage this, this very valuable facility itself, and that it's not going to cause any harm to the crew. Uh, so that's the safety element. And then we also need to make sure we can operate it. So we have different uh, operation centers um, across Europe and um, a main Columbus control center, which is like the mission control center in Houston based uh, near Munich, Germany. And, and there um, they develop the procedures for the astronauts themselves to use, but also uh, the commanding that might be required from the ground. And so there's that operations phase. And then on top of that, we need to also train the crew themselves. <laughs> so make sure that they're familiar with it, depending again on the complexity of the hardware. The training can, can be quite detailed or it could be just a very high level briefing. It really just depends on, on the complexity of that, that procedure. Uh, and then finally, we need to get that experiment up there. So there's a logistics element which is uh, shipping it from Europe to the launch site and then integrating it in the launch vehicle itself. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, installing it um, wherever it will go inside the, in the space station, operating that experiment. And then sometimes we even return the samples to the ground to back to the scientists. So there could be blood samples, there could be uh, biological samples, there can even be uh, material samples. Uh, for example, we have an experiment um, where um, we use uh, it's a material science experiment and we we actually bring the full sample back so that it can be uh, analyzed on the ground so in in That's the end <laughs> from from the time a scientist comes up with the idea depending how complex it is it can take a number of years but it can also be quite quick so it really just depends on that development aspect and then we we really um have a lot of of activities that start to happen in parallel as the design gets more and more mature. Um, but there's also cases where um, sometimes the, the, the science is very interesting, but how you measure it is fairly straightforward. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of qualifying equipment that's already used on the ground and using it for space. For example, as if you need an ultrasound, we have a lot of ultrasounds on Earth already. so can we use one of these and what does it take to qualify it and to ensure it's safe to operate from space, for example? So an experiment like that might take less time because the hardware already exists and it's just a matter of qualifying it for, for space, uh, making sure we've covered all the safety points, understanding how we're going to plug it in to get power and how we're going to get our data down. <laughs> but uh, in general, yeah, I, I think what's, what's, um, what's hard when we talk about a timeline is the simple fact that there's such a huge variety of science. And so every single experiment is different. And even in the similar domain, like human research or biology, there can still be a huge uh, difference in complexity. It's very interesting when you realize that things we take for granted are not as trivial as we believe. Most people can ride a bicycle, okay? And people who ride a bicycle, it's one of the things you cannot explain. You can either do it or you cannot do it, but you cannot explain how you ride a bicycle, right? I guess we had dozens of vestibular experiments on a space station to dig into that mechanism, which is literally behind the fact that we are able to balance ourselves, right? And it's, it's very fascinating if you just compare the experimental setups 
how different teams try to come closer to this to the to the core of that whole thing, right? There were there were experiments where you asked the astronaut uh, with 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 virtual Google's and, uh, ahead of them to to describe their 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 subjective horizon, right? We we had we had we had ex, ex, experiments where we where we where we tried to to dig into the inversion phenomena that some people when come to the space station they have the, these flip effect that you they see the things upside down and stuff like that. It's very interesting for me that things where really literally nobody really thinks about it in day to day life they are so complex and if you take this one parameter again gravity out right one one. Uh, one scaling factor, so to say, is out of the equation, and yet suddenly you see very different things, and that that's a that's a very interesting thing, and that is, by the way, the art of designing an experiment. To take this in and say, if I take gravity out, does it bring me closer to the real to the real core of the phenomena? And if you can answer that question with yes, then you are a step forward of designing a good space experiment. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 the art, so to say, is to understand, not, not to say I can do this in space. I can do this experiment in space. The art is to say I have to go to space because of that and that. If I take gravity out, I, I can see this phenomena much clearer. And that is very interesting to me. Yeah, I love that. I love that description. That's mm -hmm. great. So what I'm understanding from, from all of our conversation is basically when you want to do science on ISS, you need to be, there needs to be, it's a team effort. A scientist, a really, really, really good planner, someone who says, what can go wrong? What else can go wrong? And someone that says, hey, would you look at that? Would that be a fair uh, <laughs> conclusion? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a very fair statement. And, and also, what, what, what I say, that's another element. Because the fact that you say, I have a good experiment and I can build a good hardware, that's still not necessarily bring it to space because you have also to convince the ops community and the safety people and all that that you really allow to do this and we had a i give an example which is a few years back we had in a, a, a mere mission in 92 there was a scientist who said i would be very interested to see how the eye pressure changes when when astronaut goes up to space and he goes from 1g into microgravity, right? So, and we had an idea to measure that in the Soyuz. So, and then, there, then of course, all the operation people said, you can't do this because they have the helmet closed and you can't do that. And it's not safe to measure in the Soyuz and all this stuff. But scientists said, no, 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 no. I have to measure in the Soyuz. I, I want to measure in the first few minutes of, of microgravity, literally. I want to see that if at the end, we, 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 we could convince uh, the operations people, the safety people, it's all going to work fine. The astronauts said, yeah, we're going to do this. So now we got this little handheld tonometer in, into the Soyuz. And as soon as you know, you have to have this little thing in the Soyuz, which shows you that your microgravity, they have a little mascot there or a pen or something. And as soon as this thing goes up, you know, in microgravity, and he opens the helmet and measures the eye pressure and measures the eye pressure every, every 15 seconds. So the experiment was performed at the end with a lot of convincing of the of the other parties involved. But what was also interesting, it showed that the scientist was actually right in his hypothesis that this adaptation process is very fast. The eye pressure goes up and then it, it normalizes rather fast. And so he was right with his hypothesis. I have to measure at the early beginning. 
but it means there's also an element of convincing the, so the, the whole chain that you have a right concept and there's a value behind it and that you have to do it, right? So you have to convince a lot of people that that's, a, that's, another, that's another element. That makes sense. So definitely determination and tenacity can be added to the list. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there, uh, I hope they're taking notes, who now feel a little bit more prepared to try and get their science experiment up on the ISS. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but we do have another episode coming up. And in the next episode, we'll be continuing to talk with Andreas, Kirsten, and Nicole, and we'll discuss the future of ISS and how it could possibly help us get to Mars. So stay tuned. And in the meantime, don't forget to keep exploring.